Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Lamar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Good to see you again. You know, if you're on for a long time, you start to come up against milestones like 150 episodes and three years. Are we coming up against uh, 150? We're coming up against it. Okay. Yes, it's coming. Okay. The Um, very first time I met the great Philip Bobbitt, who was on this podcast, and we respectfully disagree with Philip about some things. I should say Sir Philip Bobbitt about some things. Uh, Our impeachment views aren't the same. was actually on the 150th anniversary of Texas Independence. Texas Independence is 1836. Oh, it features very prominently in a chapter that I have recently completed of a new book called Texas and California. But Texas gains its independence. They actually have a declaration of independence signed by people, including a fellow whose name is, wait for it, Thomas Jefferson Rusk. It's March 1836. And I meet Philip on the 150th anniversary of that in 1986, and I learned a word that year, which is sesquicentennial. Um, that's the 150th anniversary of something. So we're going to come up on our sesquicentennial episode, Andy. Next week. <laughs> okay. Hard to believe. We haven't missed a week yet. Lou Gehrig. Yes. Yes. Or Woody Allen. 90% of life is just showing up. I like Lou Gehrig best of all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we've done a couple of episodes uh, recently on the, uh, the the Speaker Follies in the House, and now there is a new Speaker of the House, um, Representative Speaker Johnson from Louisiana, and uh, he was kind of a you know out of the blue, I think, um, or out of the red, I guess. Uh, <laughs> We're going to talk really about red and blue a lot today, Andy. Yes. Didn't expect it, but there he is. And, you know, we talked a little bit about Jim Jordan in terms of someone that, um, you know, maybe was he qualified under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, because of various things that he did that were uh, possibly insurrectionist or giving aid and comfort to people that were enemies of the Constitution. So, Representative Johnson has had his own troubles with the 2020 election. Where do you where do you place him on that spectrum? Well, since you mentioned Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, we we should remind our audience that there's actually going to be a hearing, I guess, in Colorado, a judicial hearing about some of these issues. And um, and I did read a initial um, draft from a state judge quoting by name our friends Will Bode and Mike Paulson. And of course, our for those who haven't experienced those episodes, we have a backlist of apparently, Andy, 148 episodes is what you're telling me. And those are two of our, I think, special episodes. So people who haven't experienced those episodes can go back and listen to Will and Mike and, and they're back in the news. And yes, and, and those episodes, Akil, are among the back catalog episodes that are accredited for continuing legal education credit. Great. So in addition to getting credit for listening to this episode, and we'll give you the code later, um, you can go back and listen to those. And, and you know, somewhere in the middle there, we say the code. And you can, you can get credit for that one also by going to podcast.njsba.com. NGSBA, again, stands for New Jersey State Bar Association, where our friends have made this available to you. And if you're in uh, Pennsylvania, New York, or New Jersey, you 
um, or get credit pretty much straight away. Um, if you're in other states, most other states, it's available by reciprocity. You know, more information on that will be coming later, but you can go ahead and do it now, work with your state or association. If you're a lawyer or a judge, pretty much anywhere in the United States. And you said you can get credit for listening to that one, but of course you meant those two. Um, and, and speaking of red and blue, you see, we invite people uh, on this podcast across the political spectrum. I suspect I, that um, Will may be a card-carrying Republican. Mike at one point was. I don't know where he is today. But we had them, and we had them back on this program. And they came back because you know we're respectful, we're hard-hitting, we ask good questions. But we want our audience to hear from folks across the political aisle. I'm going to tell you a little bit about political aisles, about red and blue, about walls within America, which I think are unfortunate, about walls around America, and we could have conversations about that as, as well. But yes, we brought Mike on this show and Will on this show, and you know, good for us that we did that. And they came back. You know, they didn't do any other podcast you know, because we have serious conversations about stuff. And, and good for them because actually they're, in effect, never Trumpers. You can be a Republican and never Trumper, and um, if I were a Republican, I'm not. That's who I would be. Um, but that doesn't mean that every single thing that Donald Trump has ever supported is evil. And so, in this episode, I'm going to actually, even though you know I'm fiercely opposed to Donald Trump's re-election for reasons that we will talk about, and I'm about to talk about with um, you've mentioned Jim Jordan and his aiding and abetting possibly an insurrection. And we're about to talk about Speaker Johnson in, in just a moment. And part of the problem is when someone basically doesn't abide by um, elections, can you trust them ever with power if they don't abide by elections? Okay, so I'm about, we're about to now get to that. But that doesn't mean that every single thing that Donald Trump ever did was wrong and that every single person connected with Donald Trump you know, is to be repudiated. And one problem, and we, we saw it actually with these speaker votes, is just the lockstep partisanship on both sides in, um, in America, in the House of Representatives. No Republican would ever think about voting for a Democrat in the House for anything. No Democrat would ever even think about voting for a Republican or maybe even sitting on their hands, which they could have done, which would have, uh, in effect, retained Kevin McCarthy. That's not true. In the Senate, sometimes people cross the aisle and good for them. Andy, it's definitely not true in the court. And so I'm going to get in the judiciary. Big shout outs to all sorts of judges, you know, who cross the aisle in all sorts of ways in clerkship hiring, in at oral argument, in votes. We're going to talk eventually, Andy, over the next few weeks about another more case, more versus United States. But in the last big, uh, we're, we're, um, I've got a brief with Vic Amar and Andy, you helped on it and we'll upload it at some point. But in the last big more case, more versus Harper, it was a bipartisan coalition that in the end prevailed. Three Democrat appointees, Kagan and Sotomayor and Jackson, and three Republican appointees, Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett. And good for them. That's true, not just on the Supreme Court, that there are good appointees from every president and from both parties, but that's also true on the lower federal judiciary. And in today's episode, we'll have some shout outs about uh, to some of those folks, some of my favorite Trump judges, if you will. But you asked me specifically, 
Andy, about Johnson. Johnson versus Jordan versus McCarthy. How to think about this constitutionally. So one thing I'm going to say is none of them should be next in line for the presidency. And, I'm, and I think, actually, if jo Johnson is a serious person, he should introduce a bill taking the speaker, taking himself out of the line of succession. And that would be a noble thing, you know, an amazing sacrifice. Don't hold your breath. Probably not going to happen. But, you know, if America is to move forward, we all have to take a step back from just what's in our self-interest or just, you know, what's in our party's interest. Now, he's a lawyer. He's law-trained. Not true of the wrestler, the pugnacious, pugilistic Jim Jordan, who has no law training. Not true, I believe, of Kevin McCarthy. I don't think Kevin McCarthy was law-trained. Andy, could you check on that? No, he attended Cal State Bakersfield, where he received a Bachelor of Science in marketing and then an MBA. Okay, well, he knows how to market himself and his party, does Kevin McCarthy. But I think net-net, I, I like people who are law-trained um, because um, the Constitution is law and you're taking an oath to the Constitution. Net-net, I like people who are smart and by all accounts, this fellow is actually pretty intelligent. As you know, Andy, I'm a actually a rather big fan. You, you don't like it when I say so, but um, I'm a rather big fan of many of Mitch McConnell in many ways. Um, and I think he's actually a smart Republican lawyer. And so I, I like people who are law trained and I like smart folks. Now, Johnson's way of dealing with the 2020 election wasn't quite as insurrectionist as Trump, who's encouraging people to, to, to march on the Capitol. Yes, saying, oh, be peaceful, but, but maybe saying that, you know, with forked tongue. Okay, so I hated that, that they, that they actually, um, that people actually with force of arms broke into the Capitol and tried to obstruct a lawful transfer of power. So I hated that, and I hate it, and I hate anyone who, you know, gave that particular tactic aid and comfort, you know, who abetted it, who encouraged it. Okay. I really also think that trying to get Mike Pence to re refuse to certify the Biden electoral votes, and in fact, instead to affirmatively recognize the fake Trump votes, that's horrible, lawless. No president in history has ever urged a vice president to do anything like that. No vice president in history has done anything like that. And Andy, as we record this episode, it's only hours after Mike Pence has announced his withdrawal from the race. And I'm going to have some things to, to suggest to, to, to Pence of a, of a country first, self-sacrificing sort, of a Liz Cheney sort. I just said, oh, I think that Johnson should pass, a, should sponsor a bill taking the speaker out of the line of succession. You know, it's a nonpartisan idea, good government idea. Our audience has heard me talk about this before. I'd like Mike Pence to actually tell America what he knows about the unfitness of Donald Trump to ever be president of the United States again. So, um, and, and that would be self-sacrificing on his part. He's going to have to be not lockstep, not just, you know, his party right or wrong no matter what. And that's why today I'm going to actually say some nice things about folks in the other party myself, you know, because we have to stop being lockstep in America. So for on Johnson's side, okay, 
He's law trained. That's good. He seems smart. That's good. He did not physically um, join the insurrection or, so far as I know, aid that in that violent effort to stop peaceful transfer of power. Okay. So far as I know, he did not say to Mike Pence, you should usurp power by simply declaring yourself the arbiter of this election, which is shocking. And what Trump did try to, by his own admission, publicly, you know, openly, this isn't secret. He keeps telling us, yes, of course, that's what, and he did that, you know, in the ellipse that day, you know. Uh, So, okay, that's shocking. Okay, but so far as I know, Johnson was not part of that. He did file some BS lawsuits. Okay, um, but, and, and judges rejected almost every one of these BS lawsuits. The Supreme Court in particular did. And many of the judges who did this were Trump at the Supreme Court and on lower courts, Trump appointees. Most dramatically, the great Stephanos Bibas that I'm going to give another shout out to later when I tell you about 10 Trump judges that I particularly admire. And so good for these Trump judges, good for the judiciary as a whole. Not great for Johnson that he even lent his name to this almost frivolous, maybe actually frivolous lawsuit. But it was a lawsuit that ultimately made an appeal to judges in robes and accepted their verdict. So... Those are a few thoughts on Johnson thus far. He didn't. I don't know if he entirely accepted the verdict because even after, you know, Texas versus Pennsylvania was was you know not heard by the court, um, he still voted um, in the House to uh, object to the presidential election results from those states. Right, and so, I I don't think that's um, completely lawless on his part for Pence to have done so would have been to usurp a role that was not given to him. My own view is actually that House and Senate members are judges of elections. And this is actually going to be relevant to this um, Colorado hearing. So I want to say just one more thing uh, about that. I don't think in good fa- I think being a judge doesn't mean that you can just call day, night, and night, day, um, and and just disregard uh, plain facts that stare you in the face. But it was not utterly lawless for a member of the House to vote in a, in a partisan way, especially knowing that that was, was going to be unavailing. Maybe it was just a, a cheap protest vote of a certain sort. And technically, all it did was say, we want more time for an investigation, I believe. So this is bad. But it's not remotely on the same level as taking up arms and breaking into the Capitol or telling Mike Pence that he can actually declare himself king over the Constitution. Okay, so this was well, not actually, good. He made a he, he made a sort of an ISL like argument. Yes, ISL said, on steroids, yeah. which is BS. But remember, at the time, Moore versus Harper hadn't been decided, and at the time, lots of conservatives had been taught that Bush versus Gore, the three justices were correct in all this, that legislature means legislature and not state Supreme Courts and state secretaries of state and state election officials. Now, this was all wrong, okay? But but he may not have known that because these, you know, he's not actually a constitutional scholar. I'll cut him a little bit of slack, but I want our audience to know I'm not partisan, but I'm also, alas, not modest. 
there was a scholar who for 20 years has been shrieking that Bush versus the three justices and Bush versus Gore were spouting nonsense, that this was baloney, this was bunk. This is the three justice concurrence of Rehnquist and Scalia and Thomas. And in Moore versus Harper, the court pretty, you know, pretty clearly distanced itself from all of that and good for them. And these were three Republican appointees, including two Trump appointees, Kavanaugh and, and Barrett, alongside John Roberts, alongside three Democrat appointees, red and blue coming together, not a wall in the middle of the Supreme Court, a partisan wall, and good for them. But when Johnson is filing this ISL on steroids brief, objecting to the fact that various actors within the um, states, other than the legislature, had played a role in enforcing elections, which is what they do under state constitutions, which is what they do, um, secretaries of state, election officials, judges, and the like. He was complaining all about all that, but that was the Republican meme that was out there, you know, and I was butting my head up against it, you know, in, you know when, when all of this is going on. And thank goodness, you see, this is why the Moore versus Harper case was so important. Actually, the Supreme Court has now repudiated that. And I'm hoping that Speaker Johnson will actually be duly chastened by that and will realize, oh, I actually advocated a constitutional argument that was a pile of poo. Yeah, speaking of being chastened, he said another thing that was probably a pile of poo, which is in talking about the Dominion uh, software. He had all sorts of uh, quotes on that. He says, uh, here's a quote from him, um, you know the allegations about those voting machines, some of them being rigged with this software by Dominion. There's a lot of merit in, uh, to that. And when the president says the election was rigged, that's what he's talking about. The fix was in a software system that is used all around the country that is suspect because it came from Hugo Chavez's Venezuela. And Andy, as so we, as we speak today, we speak after Sidney Powell has said all of that was false. You know, after she's pled mm -hmm. guilty to serious uh, offenses of uttering false statements, Jenna Ellis pled guilty to um, a felony, accepting responsibility for these false statements. Ken Chesbro pled guilty. So, and there were judges. And don't forget, Fox had to pay seven hundred million dollars or whatever it was. And, and thank you know, in damages. And, th for and thank you. Steve Sussman, the late, great Steve Sussman, one of my friends and heroes. We should do an episode in his honor at a certain point, and, and we will. Big shout out to his um, widow, um, Ellen. He gave a lot of money to Yale. He's very generous. He was personally very kind to me. He also was a Hugo Black clerk, a, a, a Jewish kid who lost his dad very early in life and triumphed against all the odds. The great Steve Sussman was his law firm that was um, involved in that Dominion case. So we should have an episode about all of that going forward. But, but Andy, even before all of that, great judges, including Trump-appointed judges like the great Stephanus Bebus on the Third Circuit, my former student, are calling BS on claims like this, saying, where are your, these are very serious allegations. Where are your facts, counselor? Have you done your due diligence, attorney X or Y or Z? And the attorneys who actually didn't do their due diligence and affirmatively misrepresented things, oh, they're now admitting, and good for them. They're, they're, they're confessing 
their guilt. And Jen Ellis put it actually in moral and, and, and religious terms. She said, I, what I did wasn't just illegal, but wrong morally. She, she, she said, as a Christian, this is what I believe. So good for you, Jenna Ellis. It's never too late to do the right thing. Good for you, Sidney Powell. There will be consequences, um, legal consequences. You guys are going to be disbarred, I suspect. Good for you, Ken Chesbro, moving forward with your lives and saying the, there were certain things that we did that were, fa- all three uh, lawyers, that were false. Good. And of course, part of their in all three cases, part of the agreement is that they will testify truthfully to the facts in the cases of other defendants, including right. presumably uh, former President Trump. But what Speaker, so that- now Speaker, then Representative Johnson did, seems to me within the bounds of fair play insofar as you put things in a legal complaint, you file a lawsuit, and then the judges decide. And the judges body slammed this lawsuit by Johnson, just as they uh, a judge, and I mentioned this in an earlier episode, I'm going to repeat the, the word, body slammed, the Tillman-Blackman theory, that the president is an officer within the meaning of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. And for similar reasons, you know, I'm very skeptical of the, the Seth Barrett-Tillman-Josh Blackman thesis that the president is not an officer covered within the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is one of about five questions that has been reserved for discussion in the Colorado hearing that will be held very shortly, focusing very much on the Bode Paulson thesis. On that specific issue, our audience will remember, I agreed with Bode and Paulson. I disagreed with my dear friend, Steve Calabresi. I didn't know that that was his position when I, when I uttered some words it way back It wasn't his position at the time. Yes. Okay. Well, I, it may have been, but I didn't know that. He hadn't made that public. But I disagree with the um, Michael Mukasey, Steve Calabresi, Seth Barrett Tillman, Josh Blackman position about whether Section 3 covers presidents. We are going to see very soon what judges rule on that. Stay tuned, audience. Mm-hmm. Now, you listed a number of people that, uh, you know, Tillman and, and company. I assume that you're not alone on your side. Oh, my goodness. Um, I've got lots. I, I, I would say I have almost everyone on my side from Lawrence Tribe on down among people who have really focused on this with great care. We have to start with the great Will Bode and the great Mike Paulson. You know, Emmons calls Will Bode to repeat clerk for John Robertson has been cited more by the Supreme Court than any young scholar alive today. And he's my former head TA, and he knows I, I love him. Doesn't mean I always agree with him. I, I don't always agree with myself, Andy. <laughs> but he's an eminent scholar. So is Mike Paulson. So we start with them. Oh, and Larry Tribe, uh, the great Judge Ludig, former Judge Ludig, has, has also weighed in on this issue. Someone who's really, two people who have really focused a lot of their own scholarly lives on the 14th Amendment are Mark Graber and Gerard Magliocca, and they're emphatically on this side. In the middle, kind of just raising some questions and an eyebrow is Kurt Lash, but but the overwhelming majority, I, I would say, of constitutional scholars, over 90%, I'm guessing, are pretty emphatically on my side. 
Okay, so just to sum up on Johnson, then um, it sounds like you didn't quite say it, but it sounds like you know th- that the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three stuff that we were talking about with Jim Jordan doesn't, you think, doesn't apply to him, and that he he's not disqualified from being speaker. Correct. In your view, except um, or being a representative, but he is that. disqualified from being actually next in line for the presidency after uh, Kamala Harris, and it's nothing personal. I think that's true of every Speaker of the House. I thought that was true of Nancy Pelosi. Thought it was true of Tip O'Neill and 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 Jim Wright because I don't think that they belong in the line of succession. And once again, you see how destabilizing it is if God forbid something were to happen to just two people. And, and there are evil folks in the world, and there are bombs and, and other things. If something would happen, the kind of regime change that would be effectuated if we moved from two Democrats, let's, let's say that they're at the 40-yard line on, um, on one side of the field, to someone who's at the 20-yard line on the other side of the field. Oh my gosh, wow, that would be horrible for America. And I'm not at all sure that Anthony Blinken would acquiesce in this, because I think he could properly take the position that constitutionally he's next in line because the statute is unconstitutional, maybe not in 18 different ways, but I I could easily actually get up to nine, especially when I add not just founding arguments, but arguments based on later constitutional amendments, like the amendment all about the vice presidency. And she's all about, it's the presidential succession amendment, the Lyndon Johnson amendment, and its letter and its spirit. Okay. So you know, we mentioned the Moore versus Harper case and, you know, that you filed a brief last year on that case. And, of course, that wasn't really your your practice in the past is to file amicus briefs, um, not something that you that you spent a lot of your time, your career doing. Um, but uh, and Andy, it, can I just tell you, know, you why I did it? Sure. Because okay. I have a friend. You may know him. His name is Andy. Okay, and he told me several years ago, Akil, you know, the idea isn't just generating ideas, it's actually getting them out in the world. So you should do this thing, you should do a podcast. And I said, what's a podcast? Okay, and now we're up to 149 episodes, apparently. And you also, and my friend Andy, um, I keep slipping from the third person to the second person, my friend Andy says, you know, okay, well, you, you keep shrieking to me about how horrible Bush versus Gore is and all the rest. Okay, well, now put your, you know, brief where your mouth is and tell the justices that. Don't tell me, you know, every night when we talk on the phone, you know, put, put your argument in writing and explain to the justices. Um, and Andy, we, uh, my friend Andy and I both thought that we had a chance with the justices, even though six of them were appointed by Republicans. Republican presidents, and three of them were appointed by Donald Trump, and we and we were and right. Of course, we're not the only people that. I mean, you're not the only. You and Vic aren't the only people that filed briefs. Of course, you know there were maybe ninety other briefs, but you know we do have reason to think that uh, that our brief was uh, relevant to the opinion. It didn't I, like that. chicken soup. I you know it didn't hurt. It didn't white. Yes, exactly. And actually, um, your colleague uh, Jason Mazzoni thinks so. Um, he had some very interesting things to say on balkanization. That's, uh, you know, Jack Balkan's um, wonderful blog. We'll post a link to it uh, on the on the show notes. And I actually tweeted out about it um, this week. But anyway, he, he mentioned that brief and he also mentions um, another brief. So, you know, it's not just that you filed a brief last year, but also you um, are teaching some of your 
uh, Yale Law School students about what's involved to file, you know, to file a brief. They've been involved in in, ver- in various ways, so it's a learning experience for them. A, you know, if you will, a Supreme Court clinic of sorts, I guess you could call it. So now again this year, um, another case, another more, in fact, more more, and uh, and and you're back with it with another brief, which we're going to be talking about some more. Haha. But I think the point here is that last year's brief, yes, it was an important it was an important case for maybe for for Democrats, but we believe it was an important case for Democrats and Republicans. Um, that it's an important case for the Constitution, important case for the country. So the idea here is to be you know, somewhat nonpartisan about it, to pick cases where your constitutional expertise is of particular value because you've written about it, because it's originalist, in uh, properly viewed, uh, or for other reasons. So I would say that's part of the same project as the podcast in the sense that it's not you know, entirely partisan, it tries to bring expertise um, to bear. Even the students, I think, are probably of uh, not all of the same political bent. So I want to um, say that, a, that been involved. a little bit about just that. Um, tell you about actually some of the students and whom they're going to be clerking for, who are jurists who have been appointed by presidents of both parties, and and just say a, f- a few things about some great judges, both parties, but I'm going to especially focus on some great judges and, and not just of a party, but appointed by Donald Trump. Now, he, you know, there was, a, there was a Senate that he had to deal with, and it's not Trump uniquely, and the Fed SOC deserves Federal Society huge credit for all of that. But I actually want to talk about some of these great jurists in the spirit of bipartisanship, because here's another thing, frankly, Andy, that was striking about Johnson. And by the way, the historians among you, I don't think he should be next in line after the vice president. But you should be aware we've had three vice president Johnsons, Richard Mentor Johnson, who was discussed actually in the new book. Many of you have never heard of him, but oh, there's some fascinating Richard Mentor Johnson stories in the new book. And Andrew Johnson and Lyndon Johnson. And of course, Andy will now you know, give his um, soliloquy about Robert Caro and, and Lyndon Johnson. But one of the striking things about Johnson is that no one in this you know, whole three-week fracas ever crossed the aisle. No Democrat could ever even imagine voting for a Republican or even just voting present. You know, no Republican, you know, could ever even imagine voting for Jim Jeffords or some moderate Democrat, you know, an, an Abigail Spanberger or, or something like that. No one crossing the aisle whatsoever. So I'm not saying the Democrats misplayed their hand. But we Democrats. But also, I think I just think that it's a little bit of an overstatement what you just said because my understanding is that the Democrats did have an overture to McCarthy, where they would have been willing to do so. Maybe they wanted something in exchange that he wasn't willing to give. We don't know the details, but I do believe that the statement that no Democrat would have you know crossed the aisle you know under any circumstance there. I don't think that's correct. Um, it just didn't work out that way. Okay. Well, um, so. If you're never going to cross unless someone officially asks you, okay, that can be your position. And, and, and I'm not saying you're wrong in taking that stance, but we Democrats can at least ask ourselves, are we better off? You know, uh, because mm-hmm. if we had sat on our hands and uh, just a few of them, uh, you know, John, Jeffries could have given permission. He's the party leader to any number of Democrats just to vote present or to absent themselves or something like that, which would have lowered the 
the number that Kevin McCarthy needed to, to stay in power. Had we done that, we'd have Speaker McCarthy. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we better off with Speaker Johnson? Maybe so, maybe not. And if we're not better off, was it you know, the smart move? Now, here's why we might be better off, for example. Even though he's, I said, maybe he's smarter because he's law trained. Because uh, maybe you think he's more principled. Maybe you think he's actually, this is much edgier, Andy, more extreme and therefore easier to run against in 2024 in all sorts of ways. But what, what I am saying is it is striking that at the end of the day, you know, no one crossed the aisle. And just to, to be clear, that does not tr- happen in, in the judiciary, either at the Supreme Court our lower courts. We've already said all the judges, Republican and Democrat, Trump appointee and non-Trump appointee, all said to all these BS lawsuits, lawsuits are BS. Good for all of them. In Moore versus Harper, you know, we to repeat for the fourth time, we had Republicans as well as Democrats, and without the Republicans appointees, we would have lost. You see, yes, so, I don't know that that that. that... That that means that the justices are somehow more virtuous or something like that. It might just mean that the structure of of the judicial branch is such that you know you can cross the aisle and you don't suffer consequences that you might suffer. Yes, sure, it's, it is structural. It, it's it, it, as, it's a whole bunch of things, including yes, you can't be primaried by the base. That's that's huge. It, it's not just mm-hmm. that. I'll be blunt. You know, most of the judges. They're very smart. They went to top law schools and got good grades and, and are good at actually hearing arguments. Otherwise, you don't get good grades in law school if you can't figure out what the good argument is on the other side. And there's no guarantee that if you're a marketing major, um, where what did you say, um, Bakersfield, that that's going to be your skill set necessarily, actually listening to good legal arguments on the other side. Um, I'm going to I'm going to call out. I think um, there are smart congressmen and senators too. There are. My congressman used to be uh, Rush Holt, who was the uh, physicist, the head of the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, and the bumper sticker of his supporters said, "My congressman is a rocket scientist." <laughs> so, so it's what's interesting is many Americans hate Congress but like their congressperson. So that's also an interesting mm-hmm. phenomenon. But but I want to go through Andy with your permission. Ten judges appointed by Trump. I'm going to say a couple of things about a couple of justices first. But ten judges appointed by Trump because in the spirit of this episode, where I'm saying you know we can't actually have so many walls between us in America. You know, we're going to try to pull down some some walls here. I'm a card-carrying Democrat, an anti-Trumper, a never-Trumper, but I'm going to say nice things about 10 Trump appointees. And I just want the audience to remember, oh, I said nice things, and it cost me in the New York Times when he nominated Brett Kavanaugh. I came out immediately saying, this is the classiest thing that Donald Trump has ever had. And my friend Andy hated that opening sentence, you know, because my friend Andy says he hasn't ever done anything classy. You can't, those words don't uh, uh, properly appear in a sentence. I say, yes, they do. You can, you can think he's horrible and still think this is a classy move. And I did think that then, and I think that now. And oh, Brett Kavanaugh, I think, has been an excellent jurist. And let me just remind people on the Supreme Court of some of the things that he has done. So I thought his concurring opinion in Bruin, uh, talking about how the the gun law there was really out of the mainstream, if you count states, 
emphasizing three times in three pages that at least 43, maybe 44 states were out of sync with um, New York, or put differently, New York was out of sync with 43 or 44 of the other states. Very thoughtful concurrence. Another very nice intervention that our audience has heard a lot about in Dobbs, especially on the right to travel and other things, and saying, don't worry about Obergefell. Um, and Griswold. Another very thoughtful vote in the Allen case about minority voting rights in the Southland. In Moore versus Harper, he joined the right side. And he had further to go because in 2000, he was, you know, with Team Bush and good for him. And he had written some things in the shadow docket that in effect he disavowed you know, by siding with Robert's repudiation of certain elements of Bush versus Gore. Well done, Justice Kavanaugh. We salute you. Um, and same ditto for Justice Amy Coney Barrett, another Trump appointee who was down in Florida in 2000 and did the right thing. John Roberts was a Bush lawyer in 2000. And good for you, Chief Justice Roberts. And by saying that, we're not condemning the people whose votes we didn't get, I think that they are honest people who just saw things rather differently. But I'm singling out Kavanaugh and Barrett in particular because they're Trump appointees, and I'm glad they're on the court, as opposed to lots of other people who could have been put on the court. Maybe they wouldn't have been confirmed, but these are outstanding jurists whom I hold in very high regard. So, you know, I think you know, you're about to talk about the, some lower court judges that uh, were appointed uh, under Trump. And I think that, uh, you know, from my point of view, uh, <laughs> you told me you're going to do this. Um, I think that, look, I don't like the fact that we don't have uh, a lot of bipartisanship in this country, that we can't, you know, there there are lots of issues which I think are you know, divided along party lines that need not be, like immigration and things like that. Um, that, that you know, the, the supposed philosophies of the parties are not consistent with an absolute divide. And therefore, I think it's important to point out things that might be on the other side that are that are reasonable. But having said that, I don't give Donald Trump personally um, much credit here. I don't believe that he personally was involved, uh, particularly with choosing these judges. I think, if, if frankly, if, if, the, if we sent him, okay, who do you want to be a judge? I think we'd wind up with Judge, you know, Jenna Ellis and Rudy Giuliani and, and Sidney Powell, you know, uh, after they get pardoned or whatever. Although I guess they can't be because it's a state charge. But anyway, um, so, uh, but we, we do have, you know, some sense that the process involved soliciting opinions from the Federalist Society and or, or other such organizations. And... So if that process wound up with some decent judges, um, then then we need to recognize that even even if we don't always agree with with the federal society or whoever might be on that side, but at least we can be a never you know I mean because many of the folks in the we, Fed stock are principled originalists and so are we and that gives us a lot to talk about a lot in common and we shouldn't be building walls between us we should be building bridges. Right. So in that spirit, but but I, I just don't want this to be construed as any kind of endorsement or mitigation of Donald Trump's. I'm a never you know, Trumper, anti Trumper, um, because, and here's why. Because the most important thing of all is that we keep actually having elections and keep having discourse. And he demonizes people on the other side in discourse, and I can't trust him to hold a fair election 
were he to be in power again. So that's just utterly disqualifying. And Vice President Pence, you should say that. Okay, the country needs you. You're you're never going to be president, but now you're free. You don't have to worry about primaries anymore. You're like a judge. So now you're free. The truth, you know, can, can set you free, and you are now free to speak the truth, and you should do that as a patriotic American, as um, a person of faith. And I'm going to show you how you do it. You start by, you know, saying some nice things about people on the other side and being willing to sometimes criticize people on your side when they're actually worthy of criticism. And no one is more worthy of criticism than Donald Trump, who tried to get you to betray everything in the Constitution. And good for you for resisting. Now you have one more thing to do. You need to tell the country just how wrong that was and why. Okay. Now, but in that spirit, people are saying, what? I thought you were a political scientist. What kind of idiot are you to think that Johnson would ever vote for a sponsor a bill that would be self-abnegating or that Pence would ever do so? Well, this genie did it. George Washington walked away from power again and again. He could have been king for life, both when he had the army and, in effect, when he had the presidency. He could have just been perpetually reelected. He did not do that. Lincoln holds an election fair and square in the middle of a war, and he thinks he's going to lose it. And he still holds an election in 1864. So, yes, I am a political scientist. That comes with a certain amount of cynicism built into the, the, the nature of the discipline. But we have had amazing leaders who did the right thing in self-abnegating ways. We have never had anyone who tried to obstruct a lawful transfer of power the way Donald Trump did when he tried to persuade you, Vice President Pence, to usurp power on January 6th. And good for you for resisting. Now, keep going with that, please. Okay, so I'm going to mention some of these judges, and, and not just their names, these Trump judges, but some specifics about them. And I want our audience to hear, at least on, on this podcast, we don't think that the truth is always, or, or excellence is always just, you know, on one side or with one color. Okay, so you're going to tell us about some of these lower court uh, judges that uh, meet your, you know, your high standards or that you find to be, you know, you know, excellent or superb or whatever, even though, maybe it's not even though, but you know, their pedigree, uh, having been appointed by Donald Trump, um, some might might say is questionable. But uh, but again, you're judging them now based on, well, tell me what you're judging them based on. So you're saying, asking Andy Bull, best by what standards, by what criteria? Here are a few. So I think to make the, the absolute, you know, to be at the absolute top, you have to be intellectually very impressive very intelligent and open-minded. And what are some indicia of that? They're not perfect indicia, but truthfully, because you know excellence can come from all sorts of places. Abraham Lincoln, as you know, Andy, because you've read the chapter, several chapters on Abraham Lincoln, he's a nobody from nowhere. He has less than a year's formal education in his entire life. He never went to any college, any junior college, any high school, much less law school or graduate school. And I think he's maybe the greatest lawyer any modern nation has ever produced. Okay. So, but in today's world, again, people like Hugo Black didn't go to a fancy law school, but Many of the people on my list actually did go to impressive 
law schools and not all Yale. There are many good law schools and did very well in law school. And this is not an easy thing to do, to, to rise to the top when lots of very talented people are all around you and you have professors of all sorts, um, professors on the left, maybe a few professors on the right, all sorts of different subjects. So, so one thing is these folks do have a certain kind of pedigree, um, most of them. Most of them went to very impressive law schools and to repeat, not all Yale Law School. Relatedly, because I said, you know, not just intelligence, but open-mindedness. Well, how am I going to judge this? I, I'm going to be straight, Andy. I haven't read lots and lots of opinions from each of these people that I'm going to, uh, whose praises I'm going to sing. I may have read an opinion or two from some of them, maybe not even that from others, but I think I have an informed opinion because I often know many, several, at least one, but maybe several of my top students or other um, very impressive recent law school graduates who have clerked for these folks and who tell me how impressive they are. And these are students whom I've come to, to respect and, and I respect their assessments. Sometimes the, these reports are filtering to me from students who clerked for other judges on the similar, on the same court or the, the same circuit or the same district court who actually say, this person really is very well respected by, by everyone. Often I, my assessments are based on what other judges have told me about the fellow judges whom they hold in the highest regard. I've been to all sorts of conferences in the last six months, Andy. I think I've probably been to about seven different events, at least, with at least a dozen judges at each of these events. And often these are events by and for judges, and I'm watching the judges interact with each other and getting a sense in all sorts of ways through dinner conversations and formal presentations and the rest of which judges, other judges, hold in the highest regard. Um, and, and that seems to me quite relevant in assessment. Candidly, Andy, I'm particularly smitten with judges who are readers, and not just readers of novels, or and not just readers of Supreme Court cases, but readers of serious originalist scholarship and readers of primary historical sources, it's very hard to do this as a judge, especially hard as a lower court judge when actually you don't get constitutional law cases day in and day out, but you're preparing yourself for the constitutional law cases maybe that you do get and maybe some of these people for the possibility that you might possibly lightning could strike, you're going to be nominated to the Supreme Court and you're, you're getting a head start on that job. The Supreme Court is increasingly telling you to take originalism seriously. That's a bunch of the cases, Andy, that we've been talking about on this podcast. And I think some judges in the Hugo Black tradition are continuing to hit the books. Not only were they good students many years ago in college and in law school, um, they're good students today. And one of the ways that they're good students is by reading. Another way is by, frankly, hiring law clerks who are a little bit more au courant, um, up to date on some of the current scholarly trends, candidly including some of my own 
writings, uh, but, but the writings of other people too. Those are some of the criteria that I'm using. Some of that seems perhaps, Andy, a little bit um, self-centered and self-serving. I'm trying to be candid. Just to repeat, many of these judges did not go to Yale Law School. Um, they are all appointed by a president whom I voted against. But they're all people that I do hold in very high regard. Some of them I've never met, or if I met them just cursorily, but I have reason to hold, to, to put them um, at, at the top of my list. And the, the list is going to, of course, exclude, you know, omit all sorts of people. I'm just picking, maybe it'll be 11 or something. It won't be 18, but just you know, picking just a few of the people that I actually know enough about to, you know, give my seal of approval, such as it is, for whatever it's worth. Well, to sum up what, what you said, or at least to react to what you said, it sounds like some of the things that you mentioned were so sort of a raw intelligence, you know, just your impression of your your interactions with them, their, uh, you know, qualifications from the point of view of having gone to a good law school and done well there and clerked for uh, impressive judges um, and so forth. Um, so, you know, so, a sort of labeling that goes on, uh, you know, by by succeeding in the academic you know, academic ladder. And then there's a, sort of an ad hominem component to it in that other people have told you that they respect them, but these are people that you in turn respect. And of course, then the next question would be, how do you respect those people? But uh, presumably it's some of the same yes. things. It's not just that they many of these people have um, hired clerks whom I happen to know, some my students, some other people's students, but many of the people on this list I know um, consider very smart, top students across the ideological spectrum. These are judges who are breaking down walls, so to speak, and who often tell me directly or indirectly that they're very interested in getting a clerks of different perspectives. This is one of the things mm -hmm. that I most admired about then judge as he was Brett Kavanaugh on the DC circuit. He, I think, affirmatively appreciated hearing uh, different points of view. You also mentioned that, you know, you want someone that's a reader, mm -hmm. preferably that reads history, mm -hmm. I think. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously you want to tie that into originalism. You said you want them to read originalist work, mm -hmm. originalist scholarship. So in a sense, you're going to wind up with people that, uh, agree with you uh, on a general philosophy of uh, being a judge. Yes. Um, that, I think that, that, so that I is guess that's true. Not... Um, but, mm -hmm. um, uh, oh, Andy, since we're being totally candid here and we're trying to be self-critical, I guess not just readers, but listeners. I think some of these people actually may listen to the podcast. Um, their clerks may listen to the podcast. And, and, and that's not a bad thing, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, of course. And I mean, so someone that, for example, that you've that you've expressed respect for before, but probably is not much of an originalist and doesn't do necessarily a lot of originalist research was is the chief justice. Right. John Roberts. Um, so uh, and yet you respect him. The, the greatest um, so appellate lawyer of his generation. And Andy, I hope the genuine respect that I have from him shines through in the most recent brief uh, that we filed, which we're going to talk about more maybe in the next two or three episodes. 
Um, so uh, I'm not sure that each and every person on this list is would uh, describe himself or herself as uh, an originalist, but I think many would. But the Supreme Court, to repeat, is encouraging them to take originalism seriously, this Supreme Court. And, and to be a good lower court judge, you need to listen to what the Supreme Court is saying. And what you're not, you say you're not necessarily reading their opinions. I can't help but think about um, sort of a sports analogy here, um, that if, if you're trying to decide who's going to be the best baseball player okay. or something like that, that you might scout them, mm -hmm. you know, you might look to see how they hit the ball. Mm -hmm. You might have, you might look at what their training was and that sort of thing. Um, but if you don't actually see how they've performed, then it becomes, then, then it's a very much of a sort of, you know, trust my judgment um, sort of thing. And, and actually, one could argue that in recent years in baseball, anyway, that a more scientific approach and actually looking what people actually did um, is sometimes overrides what their potential is. Like a five-tool player, you know, may not actually turn out to be a great player. So I would say that another way, another criterion I think we would have that someone listening to this podcast would have to use before they would take what you're saying, you know, to heart would have to be, well, how has it turned out in the past? So in other words, you've made certain predictions about judges or, you know, justices or whatever, um, that this person seems like they're going to be good or this person, you know, that sort of thing. So when you evaluate your own performance in that respect over the, over the decades, because you have been around for a while, it's one advantage we have here, how would, would you say that, uh, that you've been a pretty good predictor that way, that we should you know, that we should take that, uh, your experience as, uh, to heart? When it comes to my own students, I think I actually have had, candidly, a pretty good eye for young talent. And I've tried to be non-ideological. I spotted young Josh Hawley and said, this guy is actually very impressive. And I knew he was quite conservative, but I could see how impressive he was. Um, and I could see on the other side, of the political spectrum, how impressive Jake Sullivan was. And Jake was my um, research assistant and, and his spouse, Maggie Goodlander, um, was. But if you look at my Wikipedia page, you'll see a lot of notable students, a, a pretty long list. Larry Tribe, to pick someone other than yours truly, has the reputation, had the reputation, still does, of being, um, having a great eye for young talent, whether we're talking about Barack Obama, who was Tribe's uh, assistant, or Ron Klain, who was Tribe's assistant, or here at a list of other people who were Tribe's assistant, Elena Kagan, Martha Minow, Jamie Raskin, M Kathleen Sullivan, Michael Dorff. There are just so many, I, I'm just not even, um, and... Well, as long as you're mentioning uh, Josh Hawley, I think... Uh... Well, we should probably mention Ken Chesbrough. Okay, and, 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 Ken, and, 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 and Larry who's Tribe. very <laughs> talented and intellectually gifted. And see, that's not the entirety of everything. But what I can tell you is, as a teacher, I've often been able to uh, gauge pretty well someone's intellectual capacity. Now, 
That's not the whole, okay? Sometimes I actually don't know them so well because you're frankly raising a question of, of character and, and, and judgment above and beyond intellect. Sometimes I know that as a human being, I think the world of Jake Sullivan. I think the world of Maggie Goodlander, who's his spouse, some, you know, Neil Katyal, um, Jeff Rosen. So some of these people, I've actually been part of their lives and they've been part of mine. I feel honestly as if they're family to me. That's how I feel about Neil Katyal, you know, about Jeff Rosen. Um, and, you know, many of them, I was at their wedding. They, they invited me. They, and when their children arrive in the world, I'm one of the people whom they notify. Um, uh, Josh Gelster. I've had so many. He's actually maybe not as famous as, as some of the others, but oh, what a sweet person as well as a smart person. So you're asking me honestly, you know, what's my track record? In terms of um, spotting, you know, high achieving um, intellect, four of my students are senators of the United States and, and a couple of them I think I have a good personal relationship with. I'm, big shout out to Michael Bennett from Colorado, whom I just adore. Lots of top professors at top places were my protégés. I think actually pound for pound, I probably produced candidly. Andy, since you ask about track record, we didn't rehearse this. I think I've probably produced more than anyone else in my generation and by a pretty good order of magnitude. Now- Well, that would make you a good mentor, but that's not right. the same as being, a, you know, a, as a- Well, hold on. So, um, so now we're talking about judges, many of whom weren't my students. But I am telling you, since I actually have a pretty good track record when it comes to my personal mentees, many of these people are people whom I stay in touch with. And I ask them, you know, whom they particularly respect. And so that these are force multipliers just in terms of, yes, uh, my own, you know, ability to, at least to, to know something of the judges whom I followed. I have a pretty good sense. Uh, I would say my track record is pretty good at saying that person, you know, has got a very bright future within the judiciary, going to be very well respected by other judges and this other person, not so much. So let me just pick one person on the other side. Very famous judge, many, many famous law clerks, including the person who pays my salary, signs my paycheck, Heather Gerken. And I was savagely critical of Stephen Reinhardt. Okay, he's now passed away, but I said, I thought actually he was willful. He kept getting overruled by the Supreme Court and not just five to four, but nine oh, and again and again and again. And I thought he had the wrong judicial temperament. And I said so publicly in the classroom every year. I said, we shouldn't have his portrait hanging in the Yale Law School, which we did. I wrote pieces about this and publicized how he had been overruled 9-0 more times than any other judge in history. And Andy, he died in some judicial disgrace, truth be told, because he did not treat clerks properly, respectfully. He was kind of swept up a little peripherally in the, the Me Too controversy. And I think that's because he had the wrong judicial temperament. He thought he was kind of above the law. Someone on the other side doesn't get nearly as much credit as he deserves because he was such a sort of a modest jurist, but I adored him as a jurist and still adore him as a person is David Souter. 
And David Souter, I don't agree with everything that he said as a justice, but I just held him in such high regard and still do hold him in high regard as a public servant, as a human being, and we will see in the future. But I think David Souter's reputation will continue to rise because people, uh, future historians will look back and say, that guy was a judge's judge. Sure, and he's not an originalist really the... quite, David Souter, although he's very interested in history, but he's more of a, of a precedent person. The very first time we met was at an event that he helped um, initiate all about uh, the history of the Fourth Amendment and the writs of assistance. And Nadine Strassen and I, Nadine was his classmate, I believe, at Harvard Law School, and did this event together. And in an earlier podcast episode, and remember, Andy, our audience can listen to all these earlier episodes, Nadine and I were reminiscing about that David Souter episode. And I think we even played a little clip with David Souter's voice. So David Souter is not actually a Clarence Thomas Antonin Scalia-style originalist, but I promise you, he's a reader, a, a great reader, and is interested in history. And, and even if his judicial philosophy is a little bit different from mine, I think he's one of the great judges of my lifetime. So audience, you might wonder what's the, the point of all this, but I think if Akil is going to give us his list now of judges to watch, if you will, that were appointed you know, on the other side, because of this theme of this episode, where we're, we we want American governance to be more bipartisan, more patriotic, in a sense, and so we're reaching across our aisle, since we're both Democrats, um, to uh, to see where there's merit on the other side. So you might say, well, okay, you know, why should we? Why should I take this seriously? Yeah. And so, and you might not, so, but we're trying so, to at least identify our criteria, yeah. and then the audience can and, judge. And I, I think, and I think Akil is, is being honest that he look. No one has time to read every judge's opinion on everything. Um, uh, so, so then why would you take it seriously? And here's why: because it's kind of a holistic view. He's Akil has a track record of finding great students. Um, you know, in other words, identifying the students that he finds to be among the, the most talented and mentoring them. And sure enough, many of them have, have flourished, maybe not all, but many. Um, and similarly, you know, I think what happens after a while is if you make the right judgments about a number of people and they wind up in successful places in the legal constitutional ecosphere, then they're in a position to see the key people coming up themselves. So when you, so since, so your network, mm -hmm. I think is a very, informed yes. network. So I would say your own judgment yeah. in many cases has proven to be to be uh, sound. And then that has led to a network which we can trust and you trust your network to some degree. You then look back and kind of get feedback on yourself by evaluating your own performance. Uh, and again, not perfect and presumably you've refined your methods over the years. So I think that all adds up to Maybe it's not perfect, but we should be at least interested in what you have to say. So with all that, why don't you now tell us who made the Amara Okay, list. and I'm going to do it in order of seniority. I'll start with Court of Appeals judges, and then I'll move to trial court, district judges. Uh, I believe Donald Trump's first appointment to uh, an appellate bench is the great Amul Thapar. I know Amul well. We've had many, many conversations. I love the guy and think he's very smart. 
he probably listens to this podcast, Andy. Um, I'm sure his clerks do. And we've invited him onto the podcast and he's agreed. So he's going to be on um, a future episode and people can hear him for themselves. Keep an eye on him. Uh, Mitch McConnell loves the guy. He's on the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. He's from Kentucky. So is Mitch McConnell, who had worked with him earlier. Not a Yale Law School graduate, happens to be South Asian. And my prediction, frankly, Andy, is that one of the next three justices on the Supreme Court will probably be an an Asian, maybe not South Asian, maybe um, East Asian or or something else. Keep your eye on him, Wolf Thapar. He's an amazing reader, very hardworking, good family person. Love him. So I think we're not going to give as much detail on everyone, but it's good to see for the first one, at least, how he fits into this schema that we just laid out. So the other just judges shouldn't be insulted if they're not. Right. Okay, right. Okay, much and I'm just doing it in order of seniority. Kevin Newsom and the United States Court of Appeals on the 11th Circuit. He sits in Birmingham. I read a paper that he wrote when he was still in college, and it wowed me. Um, and and we should have brought him onto the Yale Law School as a student, but we didn't. Harvard picked him up first in his class at Harvard. Clerked on the Supreme Court, Solicitor General of Alabama, at a preposterously young age. He and I are actually going to be co-teaching a class at Yale in the uh, spring, and he's awesome. Both he and Amul, cards on the table, have hired many of Yale's top students, and I, and I know they always sing his praises. Joan Larson is someone I'm not sure I know as well personally. She uh, graduated from the Northwestern Law School. She's in the United States Court of Appeals for the sixth circuit. She's in, in, in Michigan, I think, but I think she was on maybe the, the state Supreme Court of Michigan or state court. But Andy, she was a, an academic. She's one of Steve Calabresi's best students ever at Northwestern. They co-authored an article together in the Cornell Law Review on separation of powers. Brilliant article, brilliant jurist. I'm not sh- I think we may have met once or twice Maybe. She probably couldn't pick me out of a lineup, but I hold her in the highest regard. You've already heard me, Andy, mention the great Stephanus Bebus, Yale Law School, one of my students, clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Kennedy, great, a very distinguished law professor at University of Pennsylvania. He sits on the Court of Appeals in Philadelphia. And I especially admire him for his writing style, his integrity, his scholarly achievements as a professor of, of criminal law. He was a prosecutor, great public service, but also he's a really great writer, beautiful stylist, and very honest. And when these ridiculous lawsuits challenging the election came his way, he called them out in no uncertain terms. And good for you, Stephanus. I'm very proud of you. Another academic, not my student, on the D.C. Circuit, Naomi Rao. She also happens to be South Asian, Yale College grad, but I don't think I had her as a student. She's a separation of powers expert. She's on the D.C. Circuit, which is a feeder circuit. Many of the justices on the current court, from the chief on down, have um, in, in the last 20 years have, have, have first been on the D.C. Circuit. Keep your eye on her. Very impressive. And to repeat, she's a former professor of separation of powers law. She has a particularly strong view of the unitary executive. Another one of my former students, the great Bill Nardini, is on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. He sits in Connecticut. I was on the Judicial Selection Committee 
that actually recommended his name to Connecticut senators who in turn recommended his name to President Trump. His entire life has been really a life of public service. He could have made a ton of money in private practice. He was in a class where I graded blind um, and was the top student in, in, in that class, clerk for the Supreme Court, I think for Justice O'Connor, has served our country not just domestically, but abroad. He I think spent at least a year doing stuff on behalf of the United States in Italy, clerked also for uh, Judge Guido Calabresi and Judge Jose Cabranes, two of my closest friends in the world. I hold them both in very high regard. They do not always agree on everything, in fact. The one thing that they do agree on is Bill Nardini, and I know him very well. Eagle Scout, straight arrow, wonderful guy. Dear friend, the great Rich Sullivan. I was a district judge, now a court of appeals judge in New York City. And one of the things I most admire about Rich, he's a very good friend with Justice Kavanaugh. I think they may have played basketball together when they were um, students. Uh, Rich was also a student of mine. But what I especially admire about Rich Sullivan, he's, he's such a modest person, he's so very easygoing, is he has spent a lot of time trying to, and, and, his, and, and a lot of his own time, even off the bench, on a very important job, which is protecting the security of federal judges and their families. Um, audience members, these are folks, they actually, they could have all made so much more money in, in, in practice, um, private practice. They are doing public service and they are at risk. There are crazy people out there. Rich heads up a, a project within the federal judiciary to, to keep our judges safe. Let me mention a few district judges. Four district judges. One is Dabney Friedrich. She's in D.C. And I've read some of her opinions involving some complex separation of powers questions. And they very much impressed me. She's a Yale Law School graduate. I believe she was my student way back in the day, although I don't think I had gotten to know her as well as I got to know some other students. But um, really like her and hear great things about her from um, the Clerkship Network. Lewis Lyman is a card-carrying Democrat. His father is one of the most famous liberal Democrats of the uh, lawyers of the century, uh, uh, Philip Bobbitt's boss on the uh, Iran-Contra hearings, the great Arthur Lyman. Lewis would have been jewel in the crown of any presidential nomination process. Could have easily been nominated by a, a Democrat as well as a, a Republican. Smartest, one of the three or four smartest kids in his class at Yale Law School, beloved by everyone, very, very sweet and smart. Can't say enough good things about him. Two others. Roy Altman sits in, in Florida. The guy's a Republican. He's so brilliant and charismatic. And you go into his chambers and he's got books and books and books on his wall. And, and I have been in his chambers and I just walk up and I just, you know, point to one of them. And he says, oh, yeah, I especially love chapter three of that one. And then he goes into, you know, I point to another one. He says, well, the interesting thing about that book is we've had great conversations about Lincoln and the founders and everything else. The guy is also a um, former quarterback of his college football team and starting pitcher. Really astonishing guy. He's a Republican 
and I'm a Trump appointee, and I'd vote for him for president of the United States. Uh, he's utterly charismatic. Someone whom I only got to know recently invited me out to do an event with some judges. Is out in Arizona. Didn't go to as fancy a law school, but a great reader and a wonderful patriot who cares a lot about mentoring young lawyers, especially lawyers who want to practice in his home state of Arizona, is Michael Liberti. And it's just a reminder, again, that you don't have to have gone to this school or that one to have this pedigree. Or I really respect the fact that he reads a lot. It's true. One of the things he's read is one of my books, but he sent me another book, which I hadn't read, a really interesting book about the founders and their uh, vision of fiscal policy. And I also particularly admire his commitment to mentoring young lawyers and especially trying to encourage them to come out to his neck of the woods, which is um, Arizona. Well, I have to say, you know, listening to these uh, profiles of these different judges, it's quite different from the way you would read about a judge in the paper. You know, so in particular, you know, so for so some judge gets nominated, you know, you tend to hear like, okay, they had this controversial ruling or that controversial ruling or they're, you know, they're going to destroy this right or that right or something like that. Less so about the... Um, the sorts of things that you've were, that you've been talking about. I do love especially the judges who want to hire clerks across the spectrum and who are continuing to read and and open to changing their minds about things. That's a judge's judge. You know, as long as we're continuing on this theme of uh, of crossing the aisle and bipartisanship. Um, you know, last week you were involved with a. Uh, meeting of the uh, Committee of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Um, and why don't you tell us about that and why that's an example of bipartisanship? We announced a report. This is a very distinguished group. It was established, I think, hundreds of years ago by, among others, John Adams. This group, a study group, had sitting federal judges, the great Diane Wood. She's a Democratic appointee, a former Hugo Black clerk, a great a former professor at the University of Chicago Law School. We had uh, Charles Freed, uh, an eminent Republican. He was Solicitor General under Ronald Reagan. He was uh, a state Supreme Court Justice in Massachusetts, professor at Harvard Law School, trained under Herbert Wexler at Columbia. Eminent jurists and scholars across the ideological spectrum. We had a study group and we issued a report. And Andy will put a PDF of the report up on the show notes. And the report recommended an 18-year idea for Supreme Court justices, 18 years of full bench service, and then sort of um, senior status um, after that, along the lines of the idea that we've had three previous podcast episodes about. 18 years, front bench, and then afterwards, you still get your salary, you're still a justice for life, but you, your job description shifts a bit. Um, and we had, a t a, to commemorate the launch of this report, we had a big event at the Edward M. Kennedy Center in Boston. It's adjunct to the John F. Kennedy Library. It's a perfect replica of the Senate chamber. In the last week, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse also introduced a bill with the 18-year idea, slight 
the different variations. There are two other bills that have been proposed that are pending in Congress. They both have uh, embraced the 18-year idea. So three congressional bills, all about 18 years. Now this bipartisan report, again, 18 years. The other details vary, but remember where this 18-year idea came from. It came from a bipartisan op-ed written by Akhil Amar and Steve Calabresi roughly 20 years ago in the WASHPO. It's just yet another piece of, of evidence that there are real advantages to trying to reach across the aisle to see if you have anything in common, you know, with if you can find common ground with the folks on the other side. As, the, as we've already mentioned, Steve Calabresi joined our brief in our amicus brief in Moore versus Harper. In this new Moore case, he's actually filed an amicus brief on the other side, alongside former Attorney General Ed Meese and a very distinguished scholar, um, graduate of Yale Law School, a, a close friend, Gary Lawson. When we talk, Andy, about the Moore versus United States case in the next couple of episodes, we'll be talking about arguments on the other side as well as arguments on this side. It's just a reminder, oh, I might disagree with Steve on this case, you know, but I agree with Steve on that case, or I agree with Steve on, about this idea, 18 years, but I disagree with him about that idea. That's what we need, it seems to me, more of in the country, and that's what we're trying to do on this podcast. We do not rule people out just because they once shook hands with Donald Trump. But our audience knows that I will never vote for Donald Trump, and I urge you to do the same, audience members. Never vote for Donald Trump. But that doesn't mean all of his affiliates are wrong. Okay, so I just want to take a, a moment for those uh, listeners who are hoping to gain a continuing legal education credit from this listening to the podcast. Um, thank you for listening. And again, the way to achieve that credit is to go to podcast.njsba.com. And when prompted, fill out the code. The code is gratitude. Gratitude. G-R-A-T-I-T-U-D-E. Gratitude. And it's not case sensitive. Um, Akil is smiling because it seems like these these codes have something to do with each episode. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's also smiling because you spelled it out. Because if anyone spells out T-O-O-D rather than T-U-D, I'm thinking yeah, they're denied the credit. maybe you don't yeah. deserve C-L-E. Do we have to spell out C-L-E? <laughs> That's C, then yeah. L, then E. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that reminds you of the guy that called up uh, directory assistance and Asked for the number of of uh, you know of CBS, he was asked to spell it. But uh, speaking of CBS, by the way, um, the uh, you were interviewed on WCBS uh, News Radio. Oh yes, by Michael uh, Wallace. The, yeah, that was fun. On 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 the drive um, uh, on the on the drive at five or the drive at six. And uh, so uh, we're going to post a link to that uh, recording. And that was all about our, the 18-year uh, idea. I actually did that from the Edward M. Kennedy Center, a live conversation. That was fun. I forgot about that, Andy. Thanks for reminding me. Sure. So what was your impression of the Edward M. Kennedy Center? Oh, it's a spectacular venue. It's As I said, it's a perfect replica of the Senate chamber, including you know the same carpet with all the seats. Several times we reminded the audience that um, 
Kennedy worked with people across the aisle. Warren Hatch's name was mentioned several times. And one of the people who just came to hear me, huge surprise, made my, not just day, but week, month, was a former student of mine. Um, his name is David McCullough, David McCullough III. You've heard of his grandfather with one of his advisors, uh, my dear friend, Paul Salman. Let me just say one or two words about David McCullough III. He has created an amazing nonprofit. So have you, Andy. Yours is Ever Scholar, and his is called the American Exchange Project. I'm on the board of Ever Scholar. I'm on the board, the nonprofit board of the American Exchange Project, as is the great Paul Salman, a very distinguished television journalist. You, you, our audience has, I'm sure, seen him with his many episodes on the NewsHour. The idea of the American Exchange Project is to bring Americans together. Um, from different parts of the country, to partner um, high school kids in Kilgore, Texas, with high school kids in Boston, Massachusetts, to create, create like almost like a sister city program. They become pen pals with each other. They Zoom with each other. And then they do home and home visits. And people from Kilgore realize that actually, oh, these Boston city slickers are Americans too, and they love their country, and, and they're decent people. And the kids in Boston learn the same thing. It's kind of like AFS, the American you know, Foreign Students Exchange Program, but within I think America. it was American Field Service. American Field Service. Okay, for. thank you. Okay, well, what does CBS stand for, Andy? Okay, AFS. Um, but to create a sense of American identity, uh, bring us together. This is David McCullough's brainchild. He has the perfect trademark for it because his grandfather, the late, great David McCullough, was so respected across the political spectrum. And David, his gr grandson, you know, isn't cashing in on the name to make money for himself, for fame, or all the rest. He's using, frankly, what he inherited to bring America together. And I told him, and he just showed up, and I didn't know he was going to show up, and it really made my day. And you bring us all together, and, and thank you for that. Uh, our audience members may want to see a recent show about the AEP that was done on CBS Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago. It's an, an amazing TV segment about this extraordinary organization. And Andy, yes, it's very much in the spirit of what we're talking about, pulling down walls. And when Ted Kennedy was in the Senate, he worked with Republicans like Warren Hatch much more than happens today. This was in my lifetime. I, I saw it when I was a younger scholar testifying in the Senate. Yeah, I'll put a link up to an article on cbsnews.com about the AEP and and uh, and Dave McCulloch III. You know, his grandfather, you know, not only was a distinguished author or biographer, uh, but he also was the narrator of the Ken Burns documentary, The Civil War. He's the voice of God in that uh, in that in that great documentary. And we, you know, Andy, I, David McCullough, it was a very loyal Yale alum, as is his grandson. These guys really believe in America. It, it's interesting that I think maybe the two best-selling nonfiction authors of the late 20th, early 20th century, Bob Woodward and David McCullough, interestingly, they, they both went to this pokey little school in New Haven, Connecticut. How, how interesting. Just a word you mentioned, uh, Ever Scholar. Thank you. Um, you know, we're going to have an Ever Scholar course this week um, on uh, Chinese foreign policy. It's called China Encounters the World. And there's going to be, and a bunch of people um, that are attending the course heard about it uh, through our podcast. So, listeners, I'm, I'm glad that you're that you're tuning in and registering for the course. And 
And of course, in January, we have, uh, of course, the Professor Amar uh, and Gordon Wood and Paul Grimstad uh, down in Florida. That course is sold out um, and has a very lengthy waiting list. But I'm happy to announce that our faculty have agreed to uh, offer another incarnation of that course. So we're going to, we're just figuring out scheduling, but if you are on the wait list, good news, there's a very high probability that you will be offered a spot in that, in that program. Now, of course, uh, the first 21 people on that wait list will be offered spots just that we have more than 21. So that's why I say, you, you know, you may, you're, you're likely to be offered a spot. And Andy, the, the um, students that we have in Everest Scholar come from across the political spectrum, and that's important. I hope the listeners of this podcast come from across the spectrum. We've had guests from across the spectrum. And at Yale College, in the, in the old days, when Bob Woodward was there, you know, when uh, David McCullough Sr. was there, even when his grandson was there, when you and I were there, there were people across the spectrum and we talked to each other. I worry about that today. That's maybe a subject for, you know, a future episode. I worry about walls, you know, within the university, just like I worry about walls within America. Um, I do know that uh, Yale Law School announced the appointment of a, uh, of a professor that, uh, you know, gives some ideological diversity to the uh, faculty, Keith Whittington. The great Keith Whittington. And keep it, keep it coming. Uh, hopefully there, there will be more appointments and more announcements in the months and years to come. Stay tuned. So before we leave you, we, we mentioned the Moore versus United States case. Um, and in our next episode, we hope to give you a kind of an in-depth look at the brief, which may take more than one episode. Um, I, I will say that this brief is more brief than last year's brief. Um, yes. So uh, more, more is less or something like that. Um, but uh, but any, anyway, I, I found, you know, I think the brief is very readable and we'll, we'll post it. And maybe audience, if you get a chance, you want to read it um, in preparation for our discussion. If you don't get the chance, we'll still, you know, you'll still be able to follow it, I think. But it, it's worthwhile. And uh, but anyway, why don't you tell us a little bit about the case, just to sort of whet everyone's appetite? Um, it seems like a very technical issue about realization or not of gains from foreign assets like yawn, snooze. But what the case is really about, and what why it has attracted dozens of amicus briefs, from uh, many from leading professors and opinion leaders across the spectrum, from Steve Calabresi to Ed Meese to Neil Katyal to David Chizer, Thomas Griffith, um, a former judge on the D.C. Circuit, and we're not all on, all on the same side. Um, we're on different sides. What the case is really about is would a wealth tax of an Elizabeth Warren sort be constitutional. And in my view, everyone's missing the point, or almost everyone, oh, Bruce Ackerman has a great amicus brief, almost everyone is missing the point, because everyone is focused on the 16th Amendment, the meaning of income uh, under the Income Tax Amendment. But I think it's not about any of that stuff. I think it's all about, say it with me, Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. It's all about originalism, and what a direct tax is under the original Constitution, 
and it's all about the most important case ever decided by the Supreme Court before Marbury versus Madison, a case called Hilton or Hylton. So everyone else is focusing on the 16th Amendment, but our amicus brief, I think, begins by saying most of the other briefs, almost all the other briefs, are missing the point or something. And the point is all about Alexander Hamilton. And this will be the room, audience, where it happens. And we hope mm-hmm. you will join us. And yeah, and as a, as a further preview, we're planning on attending the oral argument again. So we'll uh, we'll have a, an episode after that as well. I think that was really a lot of fun, is talking about the oral argument itself. Um, We're going to have so lots of episodes. We'll have a, you know probably one just Andy, you and I. We'll bring Vic on for an episode. We'll invite Steve Calabresi and others on the other side uh, to to join in. Neil Katyal um, has a brief on the other side. You know he's got a, a client. We'll invite people on the other side to weigh in. And then of course yes, we're going to be down to see it all at the oral argument, and we will report to you everything that we see and hear. Okay. Well, until next week then. Thank you very much.